0: Welcome back to New Books and Gender Studies. I am the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. Today my conversation is with Eileen Hunt Bodding, co-editor with Adrienne Burgess and Ellen Coffey of the anthology The Wollstonecraftian Mind, published by Rutledge. Bodding is professor of political science at the University of Notre Dame. The collection presents 39 essays from distinguished scholars in philosophy, religion, literature, intellectual history, and other fields who consider the work of the 18th century British philosopher Mary Wollstonecraft. A political and moral thinker and a forerunner to modern feminism, she has not received attention on par with the wide breadth of her ideas. The collection gives a reader insight into her life, major works of philosophy and novels, debates with Edmund Burke and Rousseau, and in her enduring legacy. She commented on religion, liberalism, republicanism, moral virtue, education, women's place in society, and much more. Her ideas were known to women such as Lucretia Mont, Virginia Woolf, and Simone de Beauvoir, who found in her a source for building a modern feminist philosophy. Timely and fruitful, the Wollstonecraftian mind provides a broad survey of an erudite thinker and a source for understanding the politics of the modern era. Here is my conversation with Eileen hunt Bodding. Now, let me introduce you to the, my guest, Eileen hunt Bodding. Hello, Eileen. Hello. How are you doing, Lillian? Good. Welcome to the show. Thank you for sharing our thoughts with your, our, our audience. Tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you became interested in Will and Stonecraft.
1: Thank you. I'm very honored to be on the Gender podcast. My interest in Mary Wollstonecraft began when I was a student at the University of Cambridge. In 1993 to 1995, I studied philosophy there. And one of my teachers was Savannah Tomaselli, who at that time was beginning her edition of A Vindication of the Rights of Men and A Vindication of the Rights of Woman* by Mary Wollstonecraft. Quentin Skinner had commissioned this edition for his Cambridge Texts in the History of Political Thought series, which is quite important and influential in my field, political theory and the history of political thought. And that fall of 1994, Silvana gave a series of lectures on Mary Wollstonecraft. And so I had a rather unusual opportunity as a young scholar, which was to study Wollstonecraft intensively in her context for about three months. And that's an unusual opportunity in higher education. Uh, Since I've become a professor, I occasionally teach courses uh, that incorporate Mary Wollstonecraft. But usually I teach Wollstonecraft alongside a whole slate of 18th century thinkers. Uh, Or I teach her in the context of Modern political thought, say from Hobbes to Marx. But it's rare to have a whole course devoted to Mary Wollstonecraft. And that was the gift I had when I was a student at Cambridge. And from there, I was hooked. I was uh, completely smitten with Wollstonecraft and everything that she represents uh, for the history of feminist ideas.
0: So, how did this collection come about with your colleagues?
1: Well, in 2000. 14, I was asked by Alan Coffey and Sandrine Berges to contribute a chapter to their Oxford University Press volume, The Social and Political Philosophy of Mary Wollstonecraft. And I contributed a chapter on Mary Wollstonecraft's theory of children's rights and, that, and how her theory of children's rights bears on her account of animal ethics. And as a result of contributing to their very well-received volume on Wollstonecraft's social and political philosophy, I became uh, good friends and colleagues with both of them. And uh, approximately two years later, uh, they asked me to co-edit with them uh, this volume, The Wollstonecraftian Mind for Routledge, which is part of the new Philosophical Minds series. Uh, And we were very excited to be asked to edit this volume for Routledge uh, because the philosophical mind series places Wollstonecraft exactly where she belongs in the canon of the history of philosophy, which is between Rousseau and Kant. And uh, we weren't going to give up the opportunity to make sure Wollstonecraft ended up exactly where she belongs in the philosophical canon.
0: Okay, so some of the listeners are not even going to know who Mary Wollstonecraft is. Can you tell us a little bit about placing her historically, when she lived, who was she, and why should we care about her ideas?
1: Well, Wollstonecraft is one of the philosophers uh and feminists who's had the most interesting of lives. Uh she was born um in 1759 in London in Eastern London uh in what was known as the Garment District at the time. Her family uh, was um, descended from uh, a group of textile manufacturers who had actually done quite well. Her grandfather had been quite wealthy um, and it had um, uh, bestowed upon his son, her father, um, a fair amount of wealth. Uh, but her father was uh, a drunk, uh, a wife abuser, and uh, an all-around irresponsible human being uh, and bad father. Uh, And he wasted that fortune, um, and uh, he subjected Wollstonecraft and her siblings to a tumultuous childhood in which they moved quite a bit around England um, and really uh, left them with very little economic or emotional stability as they moved into adulthood. She had, however, a remarkable intellect. I personally think that she was a genius because she had little to no formal education. She was taught mainly by tutors that she sought out herself as a young woman. She was always a woman of faith. Uh, she was Christian. She was raised in the Anglican church, uh, uh, and she always sought out the tutelage of Protestant ministers. Um uh and she was very lucky to have a series of of men who um were ministers uh in the church who took an interest in her and in, in developing her intellect. And so from a very early age, like her late teenage years onward, she was able to study theology, um, to some degree philosophy. Uh, literature at a very high level as a result of having this series of male ministerial tutors um that she that she arranged on her own, uh, which shows really what a what an intellectual drive she had to to succeed in life and to rise above her less than auspicious circumstances as a young woman who had been raised in a uh an abusive um economically down downward mobile family. Uh, in her late 20s, she began to publish, uh, and uh, her first book was called Thoughts on the Education of Daughters, um, which comes out in 1787. Uh, and this is a treatise on female education, uh, and it contains the seeds of many of the ideas that she develops later in her most famous book, A Vindication of the Rights of Woman, which comes out in 1792 and launches her really into a career of international fame. Now, tragically, of course, she died at the age of 38 in 1797, um, just 11 days after giving birth to her daughter, um, the future Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin Shelley, uh, the author of Frankenstein. So her life is interesting on multiple levels from a gender studies perspective. Uh, She herself as a young woman, uh, overcame many obstacles to um, intellectual and academic and writerly success. Um, She published some of the most important books in the feminist tradition, um, including A Vindication of the Rights of Women from 1792 and her final incomplete novel that was published posthumously, Mariah or the Wrongs of Woman, which is often described as the first feminist novel. Well, and then third, which, to top it off, she gives birth to none other than the author of Frankenstein, which is rightly understood as another one of the first and most important feminist novels.
0: Okay, let me ask you about Wollstonecraft's uh, education. As you're talking about, it was sort of ad hoc. She kind of did it herself with lots with help from other people that she sought out. What kind of uh, significant intellectual movements was she being immersed in? What was going around around her as she was studying and thinking? Before she published, what was she being exposed to? What kind of thinkers were part of this this self-education? It's a great question. Well,
1: first and foremost, Christianity. Uh, She was raised Anglican. She never left the Anglican church. She continued to attend services all the way through to the end of her life. Um, but when she was in her late 20s, she was living at Newington Green in North London, which was a site for many progressive intellectuals and in the dissenting Christian tradition of the time, especially the more rationalistic groups that were organized around, in particular, the abolition movement of the period. And her theological mentor there was the minister Richard Price, who was also one of the world's leading mathematicians of the period and a very famous political theorist who was castigated by Edmund Burke uh, in the Reflections on the Revolution in France in 1790 for uh, supporting the French Revolution. Uh, and Wollstonecraft benefited tremendously from the mentorship of Richard Price. That That is Perhaps the single most important intellectual and um, theological influence on her on her mind as a young woman. Uh, Beyond that, she loved literature, and two of the literary figures that she well, I should say, three of the literary figures that she immersed herself in during this time period are John Milton, especially his *Paradise Lost*, the works of Shakespeare. And thirdly, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, especially his novels, Emile, or On Education, and Julie, or the new Eloise.
0: So of her major works, um, I wanted to know, we know of Vindication of Rights of Women, lots of people know about that work. What works have been neglected?
1: Well, the first work, Thoughts on the Education of Daughters, is one that is usually only mentioned because it was her first. But when you take a closer look at that first book, you see there's a lot going on there, especially if you're interested in gender studies. There's a whole chapter devoted to dress, the question of how how girls and women ought to dress. What's the most moral way to conduct yourself when it comes to fashion? And it's a really interesting question. It may seem superficial at first, but when you read the chapter, especially in the context of her later works um, that are generally understood as feminist or proto feminist, you start to see that even as a very young woman in 1786, when she was writing this book, Wollstonecraft had a strong sense of how of how important embodiment is, how important public presentation is, how important seemingly superficial choices like what we wear says about who we are and how other people will interpret us in society. And she took a hard line. She thought that in general, women were going down the wrong path in life, largely because of the way they were presenting themselves in public. And she thought that women of her time could take control over their public presentation and their embodiment in public space um, by taking control over the way they dressed. And she herself uh, advocated for in the book and in the earliest portraiture we have of her for women to adopt a more simple, plain style of dress. If you look at her earliest portraits, she typically wears dark clothing, uh, blue, black, green. Um, She wears, rather than uh, pastels or lace, um, she prefers pinstripes. Uh, She always preferred to wear a hat or some sort of simple bandeau to tie back her hair, um, which was never done up in tight curls, Um, always more loose and natural. If she used powder for her hair in a portrait, it was very light. It was not overdone. Uh, She typically represented herself in what I would say gender fluid terms. Uh, There's a way in which her earliest portraits done by artists such as John Opie and John Williamson uh, show her to be someone who was already aware of the need for women to navigate a new space between accepted gender norms of femininity and masculinity. And she knew this perhaps as early as 1787 when she was, um, uh, well, I I would actually push back even further. She knew this as early as 1786 when she was writing Thoughts on the Education of Daughters. And I think one of her intentions in that book, especially in the chapter on dress, was to open women's minds to the possibility that they could make simple yet dramatic changes in public, tra- public presentation um, that would have a positive impact not only on their own lives and experiences of freedom and morality in their everyday life, but would make the world a better place for their daughters.
0: So in the study of Mary Willen Stonecraft, um, it seems like is this volume that you've put together with your colleagues an attempt to uh, to correct a deficiency? Has she been neglected? Has she not been given the uh, the place in philosophy? And I'm talking philosophy broadly, not just feminist philosophy, but in a bigger context. Has she been neglected in some way? I think in philosophy,
1: for sure. Uh Like I mentioned earlier, the way I became exposed to Mary Wollstonecraft in any rigorous sense was in a philosophy course. But in some sense, that was serendipity because Silvana Tomaselli uh, is a very unique kind of philosopher. She's a philosopher who also studies the history of political thought, who's deeply interested in literature. And she brought a broadly interdisciplinary and humanistic approach to the study of Mary Wollstonecraft. Um, And that's unusual. It it was certainly unusual 25 years ago. Um, It's still unusual now to some degree. We believe this volume in its interdisciplinary approach to the study of Mary Wollstonecraft within the philosophical canon sets up a new methodological model for how we ought to be placing Wollstonecraft within philosophy um, going forward. And if I might just give you an overview of the book and how it's structured, um, uh, we have it uh, structured in five parts. Uh, The first part looks at the background behind Mary Wollstonecraft's ideas. And so the purpose of this section is to show that prior to Wollstonecraft, there was a lot of important uh, philosophical groundwork to be kind of uh, um, uh, laid out before she could have even begun to write a book like A Vindication of the Rights of Woman*. So we begin with a chapter by Karen Green on the defense of women, um, which is also known in the scholarship as the Querelle des Femmes, um, a debate on women and the equality of the sexes, which had been going back um, in European philosophy to France uh, in the early 1400s when Christine de Pizan uh, wrote books such as The Book of the City of Ladies. So Karen sets out an account of how in philosophy, there had been a debate about the equality of the sexes going back to roughly 1400. Um, But this debate was constrained within court societies, um, uh, convents, uh, and uh, among those people um, uh, lucky enough to have the education um, and the privilege to debate such lofty ideas which were not the focus of philosophical work. Um, uh, And so um, uh, there was this earlier tradition of engaging the question of women's um, relationship to men and uh, women's uh, equality with men, especially when it came to the intellect. Uh, But it was one that was quite rarefied and marginalized within the canon of philosophy
0: uh, and don't you have to have you have to have uh, certain events like you've got to have the enlightenment and the idea that man, the male <laughs> has rights before it, it, women could be, even begin to claim rights for themselves I mean no people didn't think in terms of rights uh in the medieval period, for instance, for sure,
1: you know there are very few examples of philosophers in the medieval and Renaissance uh, and even the earliest part of the early modern era, who really applied the concept of rights at all to women. Um, I've written a little bit about this in my book, *Wollstonecraft Mill and Women's Human Rights, and I, I find a few examples um, of, of philosophers. Um, you can find a little bit in Ockham, um, even more in Suarez, uh, But they're they're, they're quite brief um, applications of the idea of rights to women. And usually it's in hypothetical scenarios related to Adam and Eve and the question of whether um, Adam and Eve or their descendants had rights to property um, in the state of nature, so to speak, that they experienced after they were expelled from uh, Eden. And so when you see these... uh, Medieval and Renaissance and very early modern discussions of rights in relation to women, they're highly abstract they're they're not very political, and they they tend to be uh, uh um, you know not particularly concerned with the rights of women in any uh robust sense.
0: Okay, so this this collection that you have here, like you said, it's divided into five parts, and there's a part where we get into uh, the interlocutors, the people that she was debating with either in print or in real life. I don't know if she ever met these people, but uh, can you talk about some of her debates like with Rousseau and Kant and Burke, especially Burke, we know about Burke. Uh, what were some of her... Uh, yeah, some of the some of those early people and then the people who came after her who also used her ideas that you meant that the your volume mentions, like Jane Austen and Harriet Taylor and the Virginia Woolf. So people before her, during her time, and after her have in some way engaged with her. Can you talk about her yeah, those interlocutors?
1: Sure, absolutely. Yeah, so after part one, which lays out the intellectual sources for Wollstonecraft, including The Quarelle des Femmes, um, the social contract tradition, rational descent um, of the sort that Richard Price introduced her to, the Scottish Enlightenment, and then revolutionary ideas of the American and French revolutions. Um, uh, We have part two, which covers her major works, um, some of which I've already spoken about her vindication of the rights of men, her vindication of the rights of women, her educational works, her novels and her epistolary and historical writings. Then we turn to the question of her um, engagement with other philosophers and how other philosophers engage with her. And uh, in part three, we have a long list of her interlocutors. And by interlocutors, we mean uh, those philosophers that she engaged with while she was alive. And those include Rousseau and Kant, Uh, and Burke and Macaulay, uh, and her second husband, William Godwin, and those thinkers, writers, philosophers who engaged with her philosophy after she died. And those include Jane Austen, Lucretia Mott, Harriet Taylor, John Stuart Mill, Virginia Woolf, and Simone de Beauvoir. Now, this list was not meant to be comprehensive. It was meant to actually give people more of a sense of the milestones in the philosophical dialogues that generated Wollstonecraftian thought. Um, so Wollstonecraft had many more interlocutors than we list here, uh, but these we feel for the philosophical canon are the most significant. Um, so the philo- the interlocutors that she enjoyed the most during her lifetime in philosophy were certainly... Uh, Rousseau and Burke, I would say. Um, But one thing that this book does nicely is it brings Kant into the conversation. Um, It's been acknowledged for many decades that Wollstonecraft read Kant, especially his critique of judgment. Uh, She was well aware of his aesthetic theory, and she engaged it a bit in the notes to what would have become the sequel to A Vindication of the Rights of Woman*. Had she lived a longer life. Uh, but there hasn't been a lot of philosophical scholarship on Wollstonecraft's reception with reception of Kant. And so Leon Carlson uh, did a wonderful chapter looking at the ways in which Wollstonecraft engaged with Kantian ideas, especially philosophy of history. And uh, so I think that scholars will find that chapter of great use because it is. Giving us a window into Wollstonecraft as a true 18th century philosopher engaged in many of the same questions that Immanuel Kant was, uh, including what is the nature of human progress uh, and um, uh, how should we respond to seismic political events such as the French Revolution as we're thinking about the way that politics should evolve going forward towards more republican. Slash democratic regime types. And finally, aesthetic questions um, that I think are quite pertinent for gender theory, questions of the definition of beauty, um, and whether beauty should be understood in quote feminine terms, unquote. So uh I find that Leanne's chapter is one of the more revolutionary in the whole book for the good work she did to recover Wollstonecraft's philosophical relationship to Kant.
0: Now, um, how was she received at her time? In her time, how was she viewed? What was her reputation and her reception?
1: Yes, thank you. That's a great question. Uh, She was reviewed quite positively from the beginning. There's been a tendency in past scholarship on Wollstonecraft's reception to, I think, overplay the negative reviews. Those of us who are academics know that it should be expected that you will receive criticism once you publish something in the public sphere. Uh, I think I read recently uh, some writer who said that you shouldn't publish anything unless you expect to be criticized. (laughs) And I agreed with that point. I think Wollstonecraft did too. I think she went into her published writing career expecting to be criticized. And I don't think she ever shied away from it. That said, if you look at the things that reviewers and critics said about her, in general, they were quite respectful of her intellect and her intellectual contributions. Um, I recently edited for Bloomsbury Philosophy a book, Portraits of Wollstonecraft, which offers a kind of global reception history of Walstoncraft from 1785 to the present. And I went back and I reread most of the early reviews of all of her major published works. And I looked at her reviews not only in London where where she was based but but in France, Spain, Germany, um the United States uh and even Jamaica. And I read those reviews and I I was struck by how positive they were overall, even if they offered slight criticisms or um, were maybe surprised by how um, confident she was as a female critic of leading philosophers such as Jean-Jacques Rousseau and Edmund Burke. Most of her reviewers left their reviews on a note of respect. Respect for her as a woman who dared to engage some of the greatest minds of her time, dared to engage some of the most vital political debates of her time, especially in the wake of the French Revolution. Uh, The question that she got the most press for immediately after the publication of both of her um, political treatises, A Vindication of the Rights of Men in 1790 and A Vindication of the Rights of Women in 1792, was the way she engaged the question of who should have rights. Uh, a review I found in uh, a Kingston, Jamaica newspaper in uh, early 1791, February, March, 1791, um, Embraced her critique of Edmund Burke's reflections on the revolution in France, uh, praised her for it, uh, provided extensive quotations from her treatise, uh, including uh, some of the anti-slavery passages from that work, some of her clearest, some of her clearest statements of her abolitionist principles. And published them in a in a in a widely read Caribbean newspaper just months before the haitian revolution and when i when I came across that review, I thought Wollstonecraft was immediately understood not only in her home country, not only in her home city of London but around the world um as a revolutionary theorist of rights whose ideas had immediate applications to questions such as abolition and whether rights should be extended to groups that had historically been denied them, not only women and the poor, but also Blacks and former slaves.
0: Now, we know about uh, her husband, Godwin, who uh, published a memoir of her after her death, and the story as the story normally goes that that memoir really sort of uh soured people on her and kind of uh put her in a position where people didn't think about her much after that can you can, can you talk a little bit about the impact of godwin's memoir and and was it as insignificant significant in in really halting interest in her or is that just not true mhm
1: Well, this is the big question I've been working on for about 20 years now. And I can say uh, with confidence that this is a myth that needs to be busted. Uh, The myth is that when Godwin published his memoirs, it meant the end of Mary Wollstonecraft's reception. Because it certainly initiated a scandal, especially in her home city of London. London was quite a small town at that point. Uh, and especially in intellectual circles, Wollstonecraft was well known. And so when the memoirs was published there in 1798, just a few months after she died, uh, the book was a raging success. It was read by all the leading writers of the period. Um, we have records of Wordsworth and Coleridge reading it very soon after it was published, for example, Uh and uh, her friend Mary Hayes read it and then wrote her own competing account of of Wollstonecraft's life that was uh, published in 1800 and also translated into French in 1802. Um, so Godwin's memoirs was certainly very influential, especially among the London literati of the period. Um, but that doesn't mean that it squashed her Reception. I actually think what it did is it made her even more famous, even more well-known, and an even more magnetic figure for those writers and thinkers of the time period who are interested in questions of especially women's rights, um, abolition in general, uh, and uh, in the development of new gender norms for men and women, uh, in particular through Rethinking uh, habits of dress, but also more broadly thinking uh rethinking the way education was performed for both boys and girls. And so what I've noticed is that Godwin's memoirs certainly created a scandal uh, because it was quite transparent in recounting the details of Wollstonecraft's life, especially her love life, prior to her two uh, marriages. Um, had two marriages. The first marriage was what was called a Republican marriage. It was, uh, to the American, uh, trader and businessman Gilbert Imlay while she lived in Paris in 1793 to, uh, 95. Uh, and it was, uh, Republican in the sense that it was a common law marriage, um, They never had a formal ceremony, as far as we know, although we don't have evidence to the contrary either. Um, We've never found a marriage certificate. Um, We do know that Imlay recorded her as his wife uh, with the American embassy in London uh, in order to protect her because she was uh, technically an enemy of the French state, given that she was British. So he registered her as his wife. And while they were together, um she always referred to herself as Madame Imlay or Femme Imlay. Um she uh loved Imlay deeply. Uh, as her friend Mary Hayes would later recall, she loved him. And Mary Hayes puts loved in italics to underscore just how deeply she felt about Imlay. Um and as Godwin recounts in his all-too-transparent memoirs of her life, um, when the relationship broke up in 1795, Mary Wollstonecraft tried to commit suicide twice, um, even though she had a had a toddler um, with Imlay. And uh, uh, this is the great tragedy of Mary Wollstonecraft's life, um, perhaps uh, um, second only uh, to her eventual uh, untimely and tragic death at the age of 38. Uh, due to natural causes. Um, uh, the biographer Claire Tomalin pointed out uh, in her classic study of Wollstonecraft's life that Wollstonecraft's two suicide attempts in 1795 were like her first and second deaths. And her third death comes in 1797, her third and final death of sorts. But one thing I've noticed is that when you look at her international reception, beyond London in particular, um, you see that the memoirs were were quite popular around the world, especially in continental Europe, Latin America, the United States. Uh, and they didn't generate the scandal all the time that they did back home in London. Back home in London, perhaps her former acquaintances uh, were... Um, Jealous of her success or um, interested in um, demonizing uh, her and Godwin because of their strong support of the French Revolution. Um, But in other parts of the world, France in particular, people just shrugged at the so called scandalous parts of the memoirs. And in fact, in the 1802 French translation of Mary Hayes' account of Wollstonecraft's life, the French translator uh, just points out that Wollstonecraft had. Um, uh, you know, uh, just experienced l'amour as a violent passion, uh, just like all human beings do. So in other words, from the French perspective, Wollstonecraft was not extraordinary or different or scandalous for her experiences of love, but rather all, all too human for them.
2: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
0: This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place. Like Texas, you've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta, tomorrow you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. How do we see um, William Stonecraft's influence on... Uh, people like Jane Austen and Lucretia Mott. That's you know that's one of the some of the essays in the book. Can you talk about how her ideas flow into uh, Jane Austen, for instance? I, I would like to know more about that. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes, uh, it, it has been acknowledged for 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 many decades in the literary scholarship that Jane Austen probably read Wall There are a number of characters, uh, in her novels that seem quite crafty, and in character. The most famous is Elizabeth Bennet in Pride and Prejudice. Um, uh, you know, if you, if you recall, Jane, um, Elizabeth Bennet is always out walking. She's, um, always enjoying exercise. She's, uh, she's quite smart. Uh, she's witty. Uh, she resists, um, uh the temptation to give in to vice in favor of virtue uh and um uh and at the end of the day, she seems to meet her intellectual match um uh in uh mr darcy and so there is this sense that Elizabeth Bennett represents the wallstonecraftian girl or young woman um uh in her intellectual independence and uh capacity for moral self-governance. Um and so uh the philosopher Alistair McIntyre makes this point in After Virtue um that 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 um Jane Bennett I mean I'm sorry, Jane Bennett that Elizabeth Bennett is uh exemplary for her virtues and uh, McIntyre uh compares Jane Austen with Aristotle um, uh, in the way that she depicts characters like Elizabeth Bennet. But what Madeline Cronin does in her chapter in The Wollstonecraftian Mind is to point out that Wollstonecraft, in many ways, uh, had an Aristotelian account of the virtues, uh, which seems to inform Jane Austen's depiction of characters like Elizabeth Bennet. So if you read chapter seven of A Vindication of the Rights of Woman on modesty, you'll see that Wollstonecraft defines modesty in Aristotelian terms. This is a point that Sandrine Berges has made in some of her philosophical writings on Wollstonecraft. Wollstonecraft defines modesty as a mean between two extremes, uh and modesty is not a sexual virtue, as it is currently understood in the late 18th century, but rather um, a mean between being arrogant and too humble. And modesty thus emerges for Wollstonecraft as a kind of sober self-judgment. And this kind of sober self-judgment allows people, whether they're women or men, um, or whatever social status they may have in society, to exercise prudence in how they relate to other people. And this is the kind of virtue we see characters such as Elizabeth Bennet exemplifying in Jane Austen's novels. So uh, what this book, The Wollstonecraftian Mind, does, especially in the chapter by Madeline Cronin on Austen, is to show how Wollstonecraft um, influences Austen, interestingly, through her feminist appropriation of Aristotelian ideas, to develop a new model of virtuous, independent, morally responsible modern womanhood.
0: Now we know, we know Wollenstonecraft in terms of feminist philosophy. Has she received recognition beyond feminist philosophy? And I'm talking about political philosophy writ large. Uh, is, she, is she counted in, or is she just sort of like, oh yeah, that's the feminist, bring her in? <laughs> Well, you know what I mean. Yes, th- thank you. Yes. <laughs> we're
1: we're we're making progress on this one. Uh I think really most of the credit here needs to go to my colleagues and co-editors Sandrine Barrages and Alan Coffey for the way that they have elevated the position of of Wollstonecraft within contemporary political philosophy. And they've done this by showing the connections between Wollstonecraft's system of political thought and contemporary Theorizing on republicanism uh, in particular the work of philip Pettit um but also um, another feminist philosopher who has done a lot of work on Wollstonecraft, Lena Haldenius um, who has written a book length treatise on Wollstonecraft's feminist republicanism and what what um what Lena and Sandrine and Alan have done in their scholarship on Wollstonecraft and republicanism is to show that just like contemporary political philosophers such as Philip Pettit, uh, Wollstonecraft was concerned with theorizing freedom as a form of non-domination. So freedom isn't simply being free to do whatever you want. Freedom is, in fact, a deeper experience of a lack of domination, and so what would it mean? Wollstonecraft asked, for women to lack the experience of being dominated or subjugated? Um, what would it mean for women to experience freedom as the absence of domination, not simply the absence of obstacles to getting what they want in life, right um, or the granting of particular opportunities to participate in society and politics, such as the vote, but rather a deeper and richer experience of freedom, which is one in which we're not overpowered, dominated, subjugated, made to serve others, treated as mere toys and tools for male pleasure and power. Earlier, you brought up the figure of Lucretia Mott and you asked what was Wollstonecraft's impact on her, this leading American Quaker women's rights advocate of the 19th century. And uh, one thing that Mott took from Wollstonecraft was the idea that women shouldn't just be treated as the toy of man. And Mott would often use that phrase, the toy of man, which she derived from Wollstonecraft's Rights of Woman um, in her own speeches on women's rights in the 19th century. And uh, I think in the feminist thought of Lucretia Mott and Mary Wollstonecraft, we find this concern that society and education and politics had been set up in a way up to that point so that women were just seen as mere instruments or toys to please men. And that was their their only value was derived from their ability to please men. And Wollstonecraft and Mott wanted to revert, wanted to move away from that purely instrumental view of women's value, um, and uh, give women uh equal moral status alongside man. Uh and uh so I think that uh In contemporary political philosophy, uh, we're beginning to recover Wollstonecraft, especially for the Republican tradition, um, uh, which is concerned with theorizing freedom as non domination. But before that, we had a tradition of reading Wollstonecraft as a harbinger of liberal feminism as well. And this is an important philosophical tradition uh uh for many reasons uh but in twenty twenty we need to be mindful of one of the most important achievements of the liberal feminist tradition, which was to um, give women suffrage uh in the United States in nineteen twenty and in many more countries around the world in the nineteen twenties and early nineteen thirties uh and so Liberal feminism is usually understood as concerned with uh the equality of the sexes, vindicating the equality of the sexes, at least on a moral level, um uh and uh and going from a moral level to a uh juridical or political level. And so uh Wollstonecraft is uh widely understood as a pioneering figure in the development of equality or liberal feminism uh, oriented around the political realization of men's and women's equal status as uh, civic actors. Um, And uh, suffrage is an important piece of that puzzle, but many other rights uh, also come into play. And one thing that the 19th century women's rights advocates like Mott did very well was to highlight how important it was for women to have a whole slate of rights um, that enabled them to act as civic equals alongside men in society. In other words, the vote would never be enough. You would need a whole slate of rights alongside the vote in order to enable women to function as equals alongside men in society and politics. And so Lucretia Mott, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Susan B. Anthony, um, Harriet Taylor in Britain, um, John Stuart Mill in Britain, advocated for a range of rights for women. Um, Many of them were concerned with violence against women and preventing domination of women in the family and in marriage and through sex in particular. All of them spoke out against marital rape. They didn't call it marital rape, but that's what they meant. Elizabeth Stanton was a devoted reader of Mary Wollstonecraft. She was a strong advocate of women's right to voluntarily become mothers because in the nineteenth century um uh women were expected to um uh, become pregnant uh, uh once married and to bear children as much as physically possible uh and Stanton herself had had several children and a relatively unhappy marriage. And one thing that she felt very strongly about is that all women um, should have a right to be free from being forced to have children in marriage. Um, In other words, even once you were married, having children ought to be a choice. It should be something women voluntarily decide to do. Only then could women truly enjoy motherhood and embrace it as part of their freedom. So even in these early so-called liberal or equality feminists who built on Wollstonecraft's ideas, you can see this common concern with the fight against domination in all of its forms. Um, They were all concerned with the injustice of domination Um, and they prescribed different remedies for this injustice but they all had this as a common denominator in their political philosophies. So while today in contemporary political philosophy, we get hung up on questions of, is this thinker a Republican or is this thinker a liberal or is this thinker some other kind of, um, of, uh, does this thinker represent some other kind of political ideology? I think what Wollstonecraft teaches us is that these contemporary labels sometimes are too narrow to really capture the richness of a particular thinker's worldview. I think we can find elements of liberalism, elements of republicanism, elements of feminism in Wollstonecraft's thought, um, and uh, Wollstonecraft can speak to uh, the debates we have in contemporary political philosophy on these different topics. but to assign one label to her, I think, does the richness of her worldview a disservice.
0: Okay, uh, Elaine, I have a, another question that I want to get on, want to hit before we run out of time, and that's the question of you talk about her defining freedom as non-domination, and in what you've talked about is basically about women's having freedom, being individuals recognized with rights, and and that's all. Great, but I wanted to know what her what her vision was of the relationship, uh, a non domination freedom that was in relationship with the other. In other words, what was her vision of friendship between men and women, love between women and women, and marriage? What what was her vision of that? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it's a great question, and this is obviously a central topic for gender for gender studies and feminist uh, ethics and political philosophy. Uh, I think Wollstonecraft is one of the first and most profound philosophers of the family. I think she's one one of the first philosophers to take a really holistic look at the family and to think of the family and all of its component parts and relationships as part of politics itself so not to separate the family from politics, but rather to look at the family as integrated within the broader political community. And uh, I think for that reason, I think she can be a wonderful resource for feminist philosophers today. Uh, Her own view was that the family ought to be as egalitarian as possible. It could never be perfectly egalitarian. I think she was quite realistic about this. she, she was aware as a uh, teacher, as a governess, as a mother of children, that the children are highly dependent upon adults for care, for survival, for education, for love, and that there would always be an inequality between adults and children and parents and children, um, at least for a time, not permanently. And I think one of the more interesting aspects of her philosophy of the family is the way she theorized the parent-child relationship as one that evolved over time and developed into an equal friendship. And in chapters 10 to 11 of A Vindication of the Rights of Woman, she sets out a beautiful theory of how the parent-child relationship ought to evolve over time. When children are young, they need to be um, provided their rights to care and education by their parents, um, no matter whether their parents are their biological parents or their adoptive parents. It doesn't matter. If you are primarily responsible for that child, for whatever reason, you have an obligation, a duty, a fundamental irrevocable duty to provide care and education to that child. When that child Grows up and matures into adulthood, there's a moment when parent and child ought to be equal. Um, when the child has been raised properly to go into adulthood with the kind of emotional maturity and gratitude that we all hope our children um acquire, that child ought to look at their parent as an equal and they ought to feel freely that they would like to be friends with their parent and vice versa. And so she hopes that when we all enter into adulthood, we will freely choose to befriend our parents and to respect them as equals for the remainder of our lives. And that when our parents are old and need our help, as we needed their help when we were young, that we will freely choose to care for our parents um, uh, in their old age. And so there's this wonderful image of the parent and child relationship beginning on a slant, where the child is at the bottom and the parent is at the top of the slant, but that slant gradually turns so that it is, um, uh, so that both parent and child stand on an equal platform in um, the child's early adulthood, and then eventually the slant turns again so that. The child is in the position to care for the parent when the parent needs that care in their old age. Um, so Walsh's general theory of the family is that it ought to be as egalitarian as possible and should enable egalitarian, respectful, moral relationships between parent and child, between husband and wife and between siblings, as much as it is practically possible in this world. Hmm.
0: So can you talk a little bit about her view of marriage uh, and her view uh, of what, how people should enter into marriage, how people should leave a marriage? Uh, Can you talk a little bit about that? You know, we've used the word, we use the term free love, which, you know, people don't really understand what that means because they think the worst, but, (laughs) but Uh, Instead of being married for compulsion or for economic reasons or arrangements that it should be a strictly a love relationship, how does she line up with that?
1: Yes. Well, as I mentioned earlier, her first marriage was technically a Republican marriage or a common law marriage, uh, and in which both parties had the freedom to exit at any time. And that's what her first husband did. Imlay just left her for another woman. He fell in love with somebody else, an actress, and just left her behind. It was really cruel what he did. She was deeply in love with him. And uh, she, he left her behind in France with a baby in the middle of the coldest winter on record. She, she, she at one point thought she was going to die. It was so cold. I mean, she, made, she actually made plans for her baby to be cared for by another family. She, she was so convinced she would die and uh, those that time in her life is absolutely heartbreaking because because, uh, you know, she um, uh, soon after that point, she attempted uh, suicide twice um, as a result of feeling uh, abandoned by her first husband. Um, so Wollstone Cove knew firsthand the 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 danger and risk that a woman of that time took when they when they married for love Uh But she also knew the danger and risk women took when they didn't marry for love, when they married because the marriage was arranged, um, when it was arranged for primarily financial purposes, whether that was um, uh, in a family from um, a lower class background or whether that was an aristocratic family. Marrying um, uh, out of pure financial interest often led to loveless marriages um, that were abusive um, uh, or... Or neglectful, um, or um, or just uh, um, intolerable, you know. Uh, And it was very difficult in that time period for anyone to get a divorce uh, in 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 England. Um, Even it, it was even difficult for people in the aristocracy to um to get a divorce, although one of her closest friends, John Opie, the painter who painted her twice um and painted the most famous portrait of her hanging in the portrait national portrait gallery um that was done just a few weeks before she died in seventeen ninety seven It depicts her pregnant um with mary Shelley uh John Opie had just been divorced um in um the year uh seventeen ninety five the same the same year that uh, oh, no, 1796. He had just been divorced in 1796, um, uh, the year after Mary Mary Wollstonecraft split with Gilbert Imlay. And I think one reason why they bonded as friends at that point in their life, and one reason why we get such a beautiful portrait of her from him in 1797, is that I think they really understood the pain of going through a divorce in that time period. Um, it, was, it was absolutely devastating. It was still socially taboo. Um, whether you were a man or a woman, it was not easy. Um, and so Walstonecraft had a, quite a realistic and painful experience of uh, the difficulties of marriage and divorce or separation. Um, and uh, she dramatized these difficulties in her final novel um, that was left unfinished upon her death, Mariah are the Wrongs of Woman. And in that novel, uh, the lead character, Mariah, um, uh, tries to gain a divorce um, uh, from her abusive husband who's locked her in an insane asylum and stolen her baby from her, uh, exercising his powers of, of, of coverture over her. Um, and uh, um, and she, she still fails to get a, a formal divorce from him. Um, uh, um, she gets at best, a, I think what was called a separation of bed and board um she in other words she gets permission to live apart from him but does not get complete completely freed from his um legal um power over her. And um but at the very end of the novel um she left a few endings. We don't know which ending she would have chosen had she lived and finished it. Um but one of the endings in the novel that she drafted was quite poignant. She has Mariah Rescued from an attempted suicide um, by the servant Jemima, who had um, attended to her in the asylum and Jemima reunites uh, the revived Mariah uh, with her infant daughter and then the three of them leave the asylum together and most feminist scholarship on the novel uh, for many decades now has pointed out that this this is uh, in many ways the imagining of a new Feminist form of family life, one in which women take control over the family through their friendship or bond with one another over the fact that they have been oppressed in past patriarchal forms of marriage and family life. Jemima and Mariah thus represent a new kind of marriage. Uh, some scholars have even called it a lesbian form of relationship, even though that sexual dimension is not explicitly um. Uh, expressed in the novel, Uh, and they model a new all-female family, Uh, and they go off uh, with the female infant uh, and presumably start a new life together. Uh, So I think in her last novel, we see Wollstonecraft imagining a way out of the prison or asylum of patriarchy uh, that involves female solidarity, Uh, It involves women helping other women through their friendship. In particular, um, friendships built on the experience of hardship. Um, Hardship that 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 arose through these women's experiences of the injustice of patriarchal society.
0: Okay, Uh, we're just about out of time here and I wanted to ask you one more question just briefly. What did did you and your colleagues hope your book, your collection, a wonderful collection, uh will do.
1: Well, we hope it'll put Wollstonecraft on the map in philosophy in particular, but we also hope that it will show that Wollstonecraft is relevant for a variety of fields. Um anyone who does feminist theory, anyone who does gender studies, um should take a look at this book. The last two sections of the book are almost exclusively on Wollstonecraft's legacies for feminist philosophy and gender studies. Um, in some way, shape, or form, each chapter addresses Wollstonecraft's uh, multifarious legacies for theories of gender, feminism, uh, and conceptions of womanhood um, in,
0: from her time to ours. Well, thank you so much, Eileen. Uh, and thank you to our listeners. For tuning in to another edition of New Books in Gender Studies, this is your host, Lillian Barger.